Good evening and welcome to week two of Rare Book School. The third lecture of this week uh, to be given by me will not be held as scheduled in this room, but will be in 201 Clemens, which is the big second floor room in the Clemens Library, the building behind the funny statue next to Alderman. Michael Winship has been exposed to almost every kind of indignity that I am known to create. Those of you who have been around before will have recognized straight off that this probably was not a Michael Winship title, the lecture we're going to hear tonight. But it was very kind of him to agree to lower his standards so that I could have a title that would uh, attract the widest possible audience to someone whose lectures are always very much worth listening to, no matter what the titles are. Michael Winship, Associate Professor at the University of Texas, has been concerned with Rare Book School since the beginning. He taught in 1983 and has taught every year since. He's also been mixed up in the Malkin Lecture since he gave the first Malkin Lecture in 1985. It's always a pleasure to welcome him to the University of Virginia and to the Dome Room and to Book Arts Press Evening Lectures. Michael Winship. Terry's inventiveness for indignities, I don't think I've plumbed yet. <laughs> Pirates, shipwrecks, plunder and murder, destruction, starvation, cast away on tropical islands, South Sea maidens, comic almanacs, bad puns, worse jokes, burlesques and grotesqueries, can it be that even the humdrum bibliographer finds a delight in such? Do I betray a secret when I suggest that what, should one stick to the study of books long enough, one finds an excuse to indulge? I hesitate to say. <clears throat> As befits a serious occasion, let me begin with a serious text. Why is it that a little spice of deviltry lends not an unpleasantly titillating twang to the great mass of respectable flour that goes to make up the pudding of our modern civilization. And pertinent to this question, another. Why is it that the pirate has, and always has had, a certain lurid glamour of the heroical enveloping him around? Is there, deep under the accumulated debris of culture, a hidden groundwork of the old-time savage? To make my meaning clear, would not every boy, for instance, that is, every boy of any account, rather be a pirate captain than a member of parliament? And speaking of pirates, and what a life of adventure is his, to be sure, a life of constant alertness, constant danger, constant escape, an ocean Ishmaelite, he wanders forever aimlessly, homelessly, now unheard of for months, now careening his boat on some lonely, uninhabited shore, now appearing suddenly to swoop down on some merchant vessel with rattle of musketry, shouting, yells, and a hell of unbridled passions let loose to rend and tear. What a setting of blood and lust and flame and rapine for such a hero. 
Yes, I confess it. Last month, I actually visited the august reading room of the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center in order to copy out those very words from a book I had first read as a youngster, Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. And yes, I then read on, as I had years earlier, remembering how I used to lose myself in the imagined world of fiction, fact, and fancy concerning the buccaneers and mariners, marooners of the Spanish main that was promised by that book's subtitle. As I grew up, I put such extravagance behind me, of course. I became a bibliographer. But those pirates just wouldn't go away. As editor of Bibliography of American Literature, I was responsible for compiling a bibliography of Howard Pyle. I dutifully recorded that these words first appeared in Pyle's introduction to his illustrated edition of Escamling's Buccaneers and Marooners of America, 1891. The Book of Pirates, which I had treasured as a youngster, turned out not to be so very important, bibliographically speaking and received only a secondary entry in BAL. It turned out to be a pastiche of collected pictures and articles, all but one of which had been reprinted from some earlier source. One fact about the Book of Pirates stood out, though, for its compiler was Merle Johnson, editor of American First Editions and an early employer and patron of Jacob Blank. In some sense, Johnson could be said to be the godfather of Bibliography of American Literature, that monumental project, the completing of which half a century later had brought me back to Howard Pyle and his Book of Pirates. Later still, in 1994, as an historian of the book doing research for a project on the American book in the industrial era at the American Antiquarian Society, I came across two letter books of an obscure Boston publisher and author named Charles Elms. I'd never heard of him. It surprised me a little, as I'd just finished an in-depth book-length study of another Boston publisher, Tickner and Fields, a publisher who had begun business at just the same time as Elms. Nor was I familiar with Elms's publications, so I filled in call slips. And soon enough, I found myself lost once again in an imagined world of pirates, seafaring. The titles alone tell the story, Shipwrecks and Disasters at Sea, The Pirate's Own Book, The Tragedy of the Seas, Robinson Crusoe's Own Book. As I leafed through them, I recognized in the lurid pictures and tales of these compilations my own childhood pleasure in Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. So, for the past few years, I've indulged myself with Charles Elms and his books. All in the name of bibliographical scholarship, of course. And I suppose upon reflection, I just might have gained as much knowledge as pleasure from this research. And I'd like to share both of these with you tonight. Charles Elms was born on the 21st of June, 1805, a native of Situate a small town on the south shore of Massachusetts Bay. He was the second child and elder son of a sea captain, another Charles Elm, 
of whom it is recorded that in 1813, at the age of 40, he was killed by lightning while sitting in his house with his youngest child in his arms. One can only speculate what effect this tragic event had on the imagination of his eight-year-old son, but perhaps it explains some of his later interest in disaster and shipwreck. In any case, the son seems to have entered a career in the book trades rather than at sea. He had moved to Boston by 1828, the year that Charles Elm Stationer is first listed in the Boston directories at 91 Market Street. Melvin Lord's unpublished chronicle of the Boston book trade comments briefly. Charles Elms was a binder by trade and a retail dealer in books and stationery, his stand being on the corner of Court and Market Streets. Not many years in business. An 1830 advertisement describes Elms as a stationer, bookseller, and account book manufacturer. Now at the corner of Court Street and Cornhill under the New England Museum. Among the very many items he claims in this advertisement to have constantly for sale are school and account books, stationery, fancy goods, watercolors, maps, fine cutlery, soaps, foreign and American paper, drawing paper, brushes, Morocco work, cards, quills, ink. He was also the agent for Emerson's raisins, razor strops, and offered to execute bookbinding in all its branches with neatness and dispatch. Nothing particular un particularly unusual here, and nothing to hint at Elm's true talent as a publisher, compiler, illustrator, and designer of books, what today we call book packaging. The earliest publications of Elm's that I've discovered are also nothing unusual. There are two pamphlets recounting the trials and convictions resulting from the murder of Captain Joseph, Joseph White of Salem, Massachusetts, on the 6th of April, 1830. Nothing about these two pamphlets make them stand out from the ten other recorded published accounts of this murder trial, nor from the hundreds of others that make up this once popular sensational genre. Perhaps it was the victim's seafaring past that attracted Elm's attention, for he does not seem to have published any other trial pamphlets. But two other Elms publications from 1830 are more interesting. They're both almanacs. One, the United States Working Man's Almanac and Farmers and Mechanics Everyday Book, and the other, the American Comic Almanac for 1831 with whims, scraps, and oddities. These two are printed in part from the same setting of type, slightly altered, and both imprints point to a connection with the editor of the Boston Working Man's Advocate. This was a great period of turmoil and organization among Americans, urban artisans, and workers, and it's interesting to think that Elms, as a young tradesman, was part of the radical discussion surrounding the Working Man's Party. But as an almanac publisher, Elms was to have a greater impact as a humorist than a supporter of labor reform. By 1830, the almanac, made up of a calendar, astronomical and astrological information and predictions, along with a random collection of useful or entertaining facts, aphorisms, and verse, had long been a staple of our press. Indeed, the second recorded product of the first North American press, that's Stephen Day's in Cambridge, was an almanac, though no copy survives. 
nor, I might add, has any modern artificer, Mormon or otherwise, supplied us with a copy. In discussing the product of the American colonial printer, Lawrence Roth considers almanacs only after printed forms and government works, but before newspapers, and comments, every colonial printer who aspired to anything more than the position of job printer sought to render his establishment useful to the community by the publication of an annual almanac. And yet, almanacs have largely vanished from modern American life. They survive only vestigially in the Yankee nostalgia of the old farmer's almanac, now over 200 years old, and those fat compendia of useful and not-so-useful facts like the information, please, almanac. This disappearance is surely linked to the transformation in American life during the 19th century that we associate with the coming of industrialism. As life in the United States became more urban than rural, less concerned with harvests than wages, almanacs must have become less and less relevant. Clocks and wristwatches began to regulate daily life more than the astronomical facts of sunrise and sunset. Daily newspapers and other printed material became increasingly abundant. Almanacs were no longer, in the words of one 19th century commentator, the one universal book of modern literature. The supreme and only literary necessity, even in households where the Bible and the newspaper are still undesired or unattainable luxuries. Our wall and appointment calendars, if anything, are the true modern inheritors of the once popular almanac. The 19th century, of course, was transitional, and many American printers and publishers tried to adapt the almanac to suit their changing world. Some chose to target their almanacs to specific audiences, defined, say, by a particular political, religious, or reform issue. Others expanded their almanacs into annual compendia of statistics and information thought suitable for busy urban audiences. By the 1850s, such almanacs were regularly being published by newspaper publishers. Yet others turned their almanacs into vehicles of entertainment, providing an annual potpourri of stories and jokes, riddles and rhymes, often accompanied by amusing illustrations. This last was what Charles Elm pioneered in 1830 with his American comic almanac. At heart, Elms's originality was to use a traditional genre for a new purpose. He turned the almanac into a joke book. For a couple of years, he continued to follow the traditional course of adapting astronomical and other information to suit the specific region in which he marketed his almanac. But by 1832, he'd given up that practice and focused entirely on the jokes and humorous illustrations that appealed to purchasers far more than any information contained on the more or less vestigial calendar pages. How to characterize the humor of the American comic almanac? Well, it's chiefly based on wordplay, puns, dialect, misunderstanding. The double mistake. I was walking, said a certain person, on one side of the street and saw Jack Stiles on the other. He, at the same time, seeing me, we went across to meet, and behold, it was neither one nor the other of us. Query. What gives a cold, cures a cold, and pays the doctor? A draft. 
Often the jokes involve a touch of burlesque at the grotesque, even the coarse. My good fella, can you tell us how to get out of this bog? Lor, sir, that be the very thing you ought to have thought of before you got into it. Ha, 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 ha. Here, the accompanying image adds to the sense of humiliation. It shows a well-dressed couple buried up to their shoulders in mud, addressing a poorly-dressed passerby. Well, indeed, much of the humor lies in exaggeration provided by the images, as on a facing page, rather pedestrian short essays on goats and churning butter are illustrated by an urchin striking a recalcitrant goat and a barrel of butter provided with arms and legs fleeing the scene of churning over the caption, butter will run. Well, this humor certainly shows its age, though it must have once had an appeal, for Elm's American Comic Almanac quickly caught on and was very soon imitated. Food for Fun or the Humorous Almanac and the American Comic Annual appeared in Boston also in 1830. The next year came broad, grin, broad Grins, or Fun for the New Year, and in 1833, the United States Comic Almanac. Elms responded with a few words to our patrons in his American Comic Almanac for 1834. And as I read this, you'll note the wordplay. For the fourth time, I come forth with my almanac, Heretofore, we have been like the Siamese twins, the only one in America. But should other comics spring up, all the editor wishes for is an open field and fair play. These remarks are illustrated with a small vignette of an overturned stagecoach with the passengers all head down in a pool of water, and the caption says, a clear stage and no favor. Elms was not content, however, simply to leave the field open to his competitors, for he also continued to experiment on his own with new almanac forms. In 1833, he issued the first of a series of The Comic Token, a companion to the comic almanac. And to encourage people to buy it, he would start stories in the comic almanac, continued in the comic token. The following year, he inaugurated the People's Almanac and the Farmer's Yearbook of Useful and Entertaining Knowledge, In 1835, the Queer Almanac. His advertisements in these almanacs also announced plans for other series that were apparently never realized, including the Shaker's Almanac and Bachelor's Register, and the Hickory Almanac and Democrat's Own Book. One of the American Comic Almanac's imitators deserves our special attention, for 20th century scholars have recognized in Davy Crockett's almanacs an important source for a tradition of American humor that modern scholars understand as one of the truly distinctive American literary creations. Although the sensationalism and extravagance that characterized the tall tales of Davy Crockett, Mike Fink, are only rarely present in Elms's almanacs, one does find traces of both. An early advertisement for the People's Almanac, for instance, promises astonishing but true accounts of adventures, exploits, and escapes. Also, fights between wild beasts, alligators, snakes, men, and eagles. Who will win? Elms 
never published Hickory Almanac, which was announced in 1833, may indeed point the way to the Crockett Almanacs, which were first published a year later over a false Nashville imprint. But they were almost certainly produced in Boston. And I've reproduced on the handout um, the first of the, na- of the so-called Nashville Crockett Almanacs and Elms' 34 Almanac. And you can see the similarity. Uh, there's nothing that directly connects Elms to the Crockett series, but there are many similarities. And there are even, there's even some material, both images and texts, that are shared between the Crockett Almanacs and Elms' publications. And these suggest that he must have had some part, at least, in their conception. A surviving letter book of Elms for 1833-34 gives a fascinating picture of the publication of the American comic and his other almanacs. Elms began preparations for the 1834 series in the summer of 1833, and on the 10th of August, he had written to a Philadelphia bookseller as follows. Gentlemen, the comic almanac for 1834 will be published next week. It contains six more engravings than the last and is very showy. It is perfectly modest and respectable. I should like for you to have the sale of them in Philadelphia on the same terms as last year, at $3 per hundred net, charging me no commission or expense from that price, and you to have six months' credit. You can have them in such quantities as you choose. The same day, two more letters were written to Baltimore and New York. These, he had agents in those three cities, and these, with an agent in Boston, became Elms's primary distributors. And copies of the almanac were to be prepared bearing the imprint of each agent joined with that of Charles Elms' agent. And again, you can see that on the, title, on the cover that I've supplied you. The New York agent here is David Felt. Elms's, Elms also worked to find distributors outside these cities, And also in August, he wrote to Albany and to a firm in New Haven, Sidney Babcock. But the New Haven firm had a branch in Charleston. Both of these firms were offered favorable terms and copies specially printed with their imprints. Babcock was particularly urged to supply the southern market. Elms wrote, I wish you would send to New Orleans or Mobile or anywhere south of Baltimore. The first sheets of the almanac were off the press and shipped to New York on the 10th of August. And two boxes were shipped to Philadelphia a week later. By early September, September, copies had been sent to agents in Baltimore, New Haven, Charleston, and Albany. And the letter book shows that regular shipments continued to go out to these agents over the following months. With distribution proceeding smoothly, Elms used the publication of his second almanac, the People's Almanac, uh, to widen the exposure of the American Comic Almanac. Since the People's Almanac was a new publication, not yet bound by agreements to exclusive rights, Elms was in contact with a variety of firms over its distribution, both those that were already acting as agents for the Comic Almanac as well as other firms in New York, Philadelphia, Albany, and Cincinnati. In mid-December, with the publication of the Farmer's Yearbook, Elms again took the opportunity to encourage his correspondents to order more of the American Comic Almanac. 
though the sales must have been just about over for the season. By the 7th of January, 1834, he began sending invoices to his three chief distributors in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, and to settle his accounts. Inevitably, there were errors and discrepancies in the record, and as late as April, he was still attempting to square things away with several of the booksellers. The surviving letter book does not provide full details of his earnings, but by examining the size and number of shipments mentioned in the correspondence, one can form some idea of the scale of the business. A very conservative reckoning suggests that a minimum of 30,000 copies were sent to New York, 22,000 to Philadelphia, and at least 10,000 to Baltimore, and probably a similar number to Babcock to be split between New Haven and Charleston. These figures are almost surely incomplete and do not include the sales by the Boston agent, of which there is no record at all in the correspondence, but these probably equaled those for New York. Nor does it include shipments made to smaller booksellers around the country. All in all, it seems likely that at least 150,000 copies of the American Comic Almanac for 1834 were sold, and I suspect the figure may have been much larger. By 1833, however, Elms was already involved in other projects. The compilation of those collections of stories in seafaring, of seafaring and piracy. And there are indications that Elms was more successful at conceiving than publishing almanacs. From 1832, he is listed in copyright notices of the, as Charles Elms' agent, a term that suggests that his business was under receivership, whether voluntary or involuntary. By 1838, he was out of the almanac business entirely, and his two continuing series, the Old American Comic Almanac and the People's Almanac, had been taken over by the Boston printer and publisher, S.N. Dickinson, who was, by the way, the eventual publisher and printer of the Crockett Almanacs. His final effort in the field was the patent handy almanac or time saver for 1843, a different thing entirely, consisting only of tables containing a large number of astronomical calculations of the celestial changes in natural phenomena of the year. Stripped of all extraneous or entertaining material, this is an almanac reduced to its most primitive form. But let us now turn to Elms's collections of stories of seafaring and piracy. He produced four of these anthologies, Shipwrecks and Disasters at Sea, The Pirate's Own Book, The Tragedy of the Seas, and Robinson Crusoe's Own Book, all of which appeared over the imprint of others between 1836 and 1842. Elms's work was chiefly cut and paste, borrowing, often from very stale sources indeed, to produce fat, illustrated volumes of well over 400 pages. Although Elms's compilations were only four of the many such that were published during the 19th century, I think that he had a special talent for finding and embellishing sensational accounts and for providing them with striking illustrations. The touch of having Captain Kidd bury his Bible before setting forth on his career of piracy is only one of many. Elms writes, the Bible's divine precepts being so at variance with his wicked course of life that he did not choose to keep a book which condemned him in his lawless career. 
And in the handouts, I've tried to provide you with other examples, especially illustrations. Uh, those are all taken, actually, from only two. One, the pirate's own book, and then um, the tragedy of the seas. What exactly is the appeal of this once popular, now mostly forgotten genre? The secret, I suppose, lies in the role of the sea in the American imagination of the 19th century. For much of that century, a great many Americans still lived in rural or small-town settings, facing long days of tedious hard work on farms or in shops and factories, caught up in a small, stable society that provided no anonymity and little opportunity for escape or release. Whatever the harsh realities of life at sea, it's easy to understand that for many young people, chiefly boys, I suppose, but let's not forget the female pirates, and I've provided you with one, the thought of going to sea provided an appealing alternative. Adventure and shipwreck must have seemed an alluring change from a stale life of drudgery. Thoughts of the easy life and relaxed morality of the South Seas or the lawless, daring-do and extravagant easy wealth of piracy must have excited the imaginative lives of many. Just like the frontier of Frederick Jackson Turner's influential thesis, thoughts of the sea must have provided an emotional outlet to social pressure. Herman Melville's Ishmael cannot have been alone in feeling his loomings. Ishmael says, whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. Charles Elms's work was much less literary than Melville, though his account of the life of Charles Gibbs from the Pirate's Own Book is interesting nonetheless, and it has its own stylistic flourishes. I quote, Charles Gibbs was born in the state of Rhode Island in 1794. His parents and connections were of the first respectability. When he was at school, he was very apt to um, learn, but so refractory and sulky that neither birch nor good counsel made any impression on him, and he was expelled from school. He was now made to labor on a farm, but having a great antipathy to the work, when about 15 years of age, feeling a great inclination to roam, and like too many unreflecting youths of that age, a great fondness for the sea, he, in opposition to the friendly counsel of his parents, privately left them and entered on board the United States sloop of war Hornet. While he was captured by the British, confined at Dartmoor Prison, eventually exchanged and freed, and decided to abandon the sea. He applied to his friends in Rhode Island to assist him in commencing business. They accordingly lent him $1,000 as a capital to begin with. He opened a grocery in Ann Street, near what was then called Tin Pot, a place full of abandoned women and dissolute fellows. 
As he dealt chiefly in liquor and had a license to retail spirits, his drunkery was thronged with customers. But he sold his groceries chiefly to loose girls who paid him in their coin, which, although it answered his purpose, would neither buy him goods or pay his rent. And he found his stock rapidly dwindling away without his receiving any cash to replenish it. By dissipation and inattention, his new business proved unsuccessful to him. He resolved to abandon it and again try the sea for a subsistence. With a hundred dollars in his pocket, the remnant of his property, he embarked in the ship John for Benizuaires. And his means being exhausted, soon after his arrival there, he entered on board a Buenos Aires privateer and sailed on a cruise. A quarrel between officers and crew in regard to the division of prize money led eventually to a mutiny, and the mutineers gained ascendancy, took possession of the vessel, landed the crew on the coast of Florida, and steered for the West Indies with hearts resolved to make their fortunes at all hazards. And where, in a short time, more than 20 vessels were captured by them, and nearly 400 human beings murdered, all caps. <laughs> Elms then goes on to give a full account of Gibbs's piratical career and adventures, including the barbarous and cold-blooded murder of a Dutch girl, an innocent and beautiful female of about 17 or 18 years of age. Gibbs eventually found himself in New Orleans. He shipped out as part of the crew of the Brig Vineyard, and for the sake of its cargo, which included $54,000 in specie, led a mutiny and assisted in the murder of the captain and the mate, for which act he was finally condemned and hanged. Elms provides full particulars of the crime, the subsequent trial, Gibbs's final letters to his wife, his gallows speech, and his death on the 22nd of April, 1831. He writes... Gibbs died hard. After being near two minutes suspended, he raised his right hand and partially removed his cap, and in the course of another minute raised the same hand to his mouth. His dress was a blue roundabout jacket and trousers with a foul anchor in white on his right arm. After the bodies had remained on the gallows the usual time, they were taken down and given to the surgeons for dissection. I've not yet identified Elms's source for this edifying, if rather lurid, account, though there were over a dozen pamphlet editions of Gibbs's confessions for Elms to choose from. As for the almanacs, a surviving letter book gives a fuller picture of how these books were compiled and published. On Christmas Day of 1839, Elms wrote a letter to the major Philadelphia publishers, Carrie and Hart, with the following propositions, and I'll quote. Gentlemen, I am preparing for the press a work in the publication of which I am solicitous of procuring your cooperation. It is a second series of shipwrecks and disasters at sea illustrated with 70 original engravings. Of the first series published by Dickinson, 25,000 have been sold in three years. If it had been in the hands of a large publishing establishment, the sale would have been double. The second series will have far greater interest than the first. 
as some of the narratives in it have not before been published. The drawings will be superior. The book is to be the size of the one published by Dickinson. Many of the drawings are now done and the manuscript copy now ready. There would be no delay in publication. As to my ability in making the drawings and preparing the book, I will refer you to the first series and to the pirate's own book, both of which I alone planned and prepared for the press, even to designing the back titles. And I did here reproduce the back title from the pirate's own book, which I think is one of the great stunning bindings of 19th century America from the 1837. I... I Sorry that I don't have a copy to flash at you. It's an it's a unforgettable book. Even to designing the back titles. No one else had anything to do with them. As my books sell better in Philadelphia than other places, I am desirous of making arrangements to publish them there. Of the sale of the two books above mentioned in your market, I would refer you to Thomas Copperthwaite and Company, who have lately had a thousand copies of each. In this letter, Elms provides an estimate of total costs, which he reckons to be $595, and proposes to furnish the text and all the designs for the illustrations to engrave himself the 35 small cuts and to oversee the engraving of the 35 large cuts, as well as the stereotyping. Carrie and Hart, in turn, would be responsible for the expense of having the large cuts engraved and of having the work stereotyped, printed, bound, published, and they would pay Elm six cents for every copy printed. The response from Philadelphia must have been favorable, for on the 30th of January the next year, Elms writes that the engraver Alonzo Hartwell had been engaged to carve the large cuts. He says, as Hartwell is successful in cutting from my drawings, it will be advisable to have him do as many as he can of them. He has a bold style of cutting, and his work prints better than that of most other engravers. The remainder of the letter concerns the details of having the work stereotyped, text and engravings together at the Boston Type and Stereotype Foundry. But he adds a postscript, which is of interest. In my first letter to you, I stated that a thousand copies could be sold for cash in the seaport towns of this vicinity within two months of publication. I need not state to you that advantages which the great gales of December, the loss of the Lexington, and other disasters will be to the sale of the book. They have all taken place since I wrote you, from the excitement of the subject. But work went forward slowly. In August, Elms reports, after a more lengthened period than I first anticipated, the book of narratives is in an advanced state towards completion. The entire composition of the work is done, all the pages cast, excepting some which are to contain cuts not yet engraved. From the time I began it, I have not done a day's work on anything else. I shall furnish double the number of engravings on my part that I agreed to do so that you can advertise the work as containing 100 engravings. The following February, he writes... The work will be finished in two days more as Mr. Hartwell is on his last cut and the rest are done. This book is far superior in every respect to the shipwreck and pirate's own book. 
I have done 25 cuts more than I agreed to do. It contains about 40 narratives, some of which have been translated expressly for this book. I have fixed upon the name, The Tragedy of the Seas. I now forward to you the design for the back title to be cut in brass. If well done, it will make a striking and bold device. And I think an appropriate one. It is of the proper width, and I hope you will have it cut so as to be ready with it by the time the plates reach you. The book contains 432 pages, and I hope you will be giving it to a good printer who will be particular in printing it and having it done on good paper. The book will sell well this way, and I will endeavor to help the sale of it here. I have sketched a plan and design for a pictorial show bill. It is very appropriate and would help the sale and attract attention to the book. Uh, by the 12th of March, the finished plates had been shipped to Philadelphia and the title registered for copyright in the clerk's office of the District Court of Massachusetts. Elms was hard at work on the show bill and very concerned that Carrie and Hart be sure to have the work printed carefully. The publishers, typically, were more concerned about cost overruns. Their records show that the total for engraving and stereotyping came to just under $750 or a quarter more than Elms's original estimate. In a long defense written in March, Elms explains that the work was longer, that both Hartwell and he had done more cuts than originally planned. The final volume contains 121 in all instead of the 70 that was part of the original estimate, and that the stereotyping had been very difficult. He writes, the alterations in plates amounting to $7.50 is the great labor and trouble attending the casting and putting the lettering on the large cuts. They had to be cast separate, and the reading, reading soldered on, which was a very difficult operation. Some were molded and cast over five and six times to get a good and perfect cast. A great part of the pages which had cuts in them were cast over, some of them three and four times to get good impressions. And they succeeded admirably. I cannot too strongly express how perfectly satisfied I am with the manner in which the foundry did their part. He continues, Only think of the extra expense I have been at in working six months longer than I agreed to do and in furnishing 50 more cuts than I agreed to do and doing all this without any income to live on as I am poor. My percentage on a copy is so small that I have always been ashamed to tell how much, as all suppose it is 12 cents at least. Early in May, Elms writes that he expects to receive early copies of the published book sent on from Philadelphia the very next day, and in a very long and interesting passage, answers the complaint that the sale of his work might suffer from unexpected competition. And this is a long quote, but I like it very much because I think more than anything else gives a capture of what Elms did in putting one of these books together. He writes, As for the Tales of the Ocean, which is the competing work, the work is a fictitious one and cannot compete with yours. And there is one book which will help the sale of yours very much by its stirring up the public mind towards nautical subjects. I mean, two years before the mast. 
you will sell hundreds more than if that work had not been published. I have not had a hand in any of these works. And I am not afraid that they will take the wind out of your sails, as it will enable you to more readily affect sales of the book and help its character I will enumerate a few out of a great many things which will, in my opinion, give the work a lasting sale. A large part of the articles have never appeared in books of narratives before, and many are so arranged as to be in a great degree original. In this respect, it is altogether different and superior to the shipwrecks and disasters. The wreck of the brig regulator was written expressly for this work by Captain Phelps, one of the first shipmasters out of this port. And he is now on a three years voyage to the Pacific Ocean in a ship belonging to Bryant and Sturgis, one of the oldest and richest mercantile firms in Boston. He is a man in high standing and only consented upon knowing that the book would be published by a respectable firm. When I first began, the book, there were two subjects which I particularly wished to put in it, but considered impossible. But I have been so fortunate to get them both. One was a personal account of Grace Darling, otherwise than her exploit in rescuing the crew of the Forfisher. In the accounts of that event, I saw Bamborough Castle mentioned, but nothing said about it, and the reader would naturally suppose it was a fortress for defense. Upon following it up, I found it was a subject peculiarly appropriate for this book, being left with endowments on purpose for shipwrecked mariners. I also got a number of the Berwick Chronicle, the editor of which visited the locality of the wreck a few days after it happened. An account of the Darling family, the appearance of Grace, the lighthouse, etc. These together make an original article and have been overlooked in all other accounts. The other subject was the Lillois, which the French government had made to, f to find some traces of her. After a great deal of trouble, I was enabled from French books and papers to get the entire account. This I deem of great value to the book. It has not been published before in English. The greatest attention has been paid in omitting no narratives but of the strictest variety. Brock the Swimmer is written. One might be induced to doubt it. I can produce the London Chronicle, under the shipping news of which is the narrative of that disaster. So of the Lascar, who was washed overboard, I can produce the Calcutta Register, which contains that event in the shipping news. In many of the narratives, I have blended anecdotes of the countries and inhabitants where they were wrecked. For instance, in the account of the Maldive boat which was blown off course, from the authentic works, I have added some interesting matter respecting the, those islands and concluded the article by a description of the monsoon. So with most of the other narratives. I have been thus minute in detailing this to you as you can with greater confidence recommend the work to your customers. And not with, with, notwithstanding what may be said in favor of the pictorial appearance of the book, I rely doubly upon the interest of the reading matter for the lasting stay sale of the work. And in the reading matter, I have done as much more as I first expected to do as I exceeded in the number of cuts. But enough of this. I think the book will sell well if carried about the country, especially in New England, 
and it would be a good plan for you to send a good supply to some person in this city so that such persons can get them at the wholesale price. You ought to have 500 or 1,000 copies in this city at starting. I'll conclude by remarking that you need not fear those other books, as I think there is too much ballast in your vessel to be upset by a fanciful craft like the tales of the ocean. Elms's Tragedy of the Seas was finally published on the 10th of May, 1841. 432 pages with 121 woodcut engravings, of which 15 are full page. Certainly a bargain at a retail price of $1. The list of agents in the imprint gives a sense of how broad a market Carrie and Hart expected though I suspect that this imprint actually conceals a distribution plan based ultimately on subscription agents. Certainly this work looks like an early, though very much smaller, version of the thick, heavily decorated and illustrated subscription works produced later in the century, most familiar to modern scholars through Twain's Roughing It, The Gilded Age, Tom Sawyer, and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Carrie and Hart's records show that the first printing of a thousand was followed a week later by a second thousand and a third thousand in June. The fourth thousand produced in August was issued in 18 24-page paper-covered parts. And the fifth and final printing of 1841, 2,000 copies in September, was bound again in one volume in cloth. These 6,000 copies seem to have satisfied the market, as no copies were produced in 1842, and Elms notes in a letter dated 26 March 1842 that a considerable number of copies were being offered in the spring trade sales. In March 1843, Carey and Hart sold the plates to another Philadelphia bookseller named George W. Gorton. Gorton never published copies over his own name, but by 1848, he'd arranged for three further printings of a 1,000 copies each, two for W.A. Leary, one for Loomis and Peck, both Philadelphia firms. Elms agreed to a reduced copyright payment. The total number of copies of the work produced was thus 9,000, a respectable, if not spectacular, number. But remember that when the work was first published, the book trade was still depressed in the aftermath of the Panic of 1837, and was still witnessing the ruinous price wars brought on by the mammoth weeklies and other cheap publications. During the 1840s, Elms fades away. The last of his compilations, Robinson Crusoe's own book, was published in Boston in 1842, as was his patent handy almanac or time saver for 1843. Nothing seems to have come of plans for a proposed series of four or six further volumes that were going to make up his ocean library. Surviving letters to Gorton concerning his attempts to collect his due copyright from the printings of Tragedy of the Seas indicate that he was spending months at a time away from Boston. He disappears from the Boston directories after 1843, and in 1848 he writes, Although I have a room in town and I'm here some of the time, yet I shall stay at Situate in this state this fall and winter. His mother had died in January of 1844, and it is likely that Elms, 
the elder son, increasingly found things there to occupy him in Situate. On the 31st of January, 1849, in a letter written from Situate, Elms admits, I'm not in the way of selling books. The last surviving letter, dated 22 December, 1851, ends, I shall reside in Situate this winter. There he settled and in 1866 died, 50 years before the 1923 auction sale in Boston of the private library of the late Charles Elms of Situate, Massachusetts, an old Boston bookseller and engraver. One wonders how he felt in these final years. Did he feel rusticated or perhaps better cast away in Situate? Did he look back to his busy days in Boston in the 1830s and early 40s with pleasure? Did his town folk or imitators have any real sense of his inventiveness? Did Henry Wheeler Shaw think to remember Elms when his popular humorous series of Josh Billings' Farmer's Almanacs were published in the 1870s? Or did Howard Pyle, when in the 1890s he edited and illustrated his own collection of pirate stories, I fear not. But yet his work lives on. In 1924, a year after the auction, the Marine Research Society of Salem produced a new edition of the Pirate's Own Book. And this edition remains in print today as a Dover publication. One of the illustrations from that book was printed just this month in the New York Times Magazine. And those pirates will keep showing up unexpectedly. Take, for example, the following quotation from an 1894 newspaper clipping, which prints the reminiscences of William Lee, long a partner in the successful Boston publishing firm of Lee and Shepard. Lee remembers his early years in the Boston book trade in the 1840s. I worked days in the bookstore and then sold books at auction nights. I also went to nearly all parts of New England selling books at auction in the larger towns and cities. This was a good business. People bought books, that is, the standards. The favorites were the Bible, the pirate's own book, Josephus' works, Dick's works, stories of shipwrecks and ocean disasters, Rollins' ancient histories, etc., etc. If 50 years later William Lee remembered when Elms' works were popular, I hope now, a hundred years on, you will. <laughs>